If you go over and turn to uh, Luke chapter 1, we're back in the series uh, we've called Certainty. We'll tell you a little bit more about why we called it that. You might remember in a moment, but I wanted to introduce to you a concept. In 1992, there was a movie, uh, maybe you've seen it, it's called The Last of the Mohicans. Uh, a great adventure movie, what a guy movie. I uh, lead with that, the women are away on a retreat, we can just be masculine here today. And this movie was fantastic. There was a moment in it in which Hawkeye, who was an adopted uh, son of an Indian who was a scout, they'd met up with some Britons, some people from Britain straight into the colonies. Uh, He had fallen in love with Korah. If you remember the scene, the Huron tribe had unified itself with the French And they were hunting down the people from Britain who've come over. They were hunting them down, trying to eliminate them. And this Hawkeye had fallen in love with Korah. There's a scene in which they're on the backside of a waterfall. They've got nowhere to go. And during the time in which Hawkeye had been helping the Britons, he'd fallen deeply in love with Korah. They were on the back of this waterfall, the Huron people, the tribe, the war tribe was coming. He said, the the powder's wet. There's nothing we could do. We can't fight them off. If I stay, we fight and we all die. And he introduces the idea that I've got to leave. I've got to go. She says, go. I love you. Go. And then he makes this statement. And the camera just focuses in. If you've seen the movie, you remember. Picture this waterfall rushing behind this guy. He's, he's wet and he looks deep into the eyes of Cor and he says this. Stay alive. No matter what occurs, I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you. And he steps back. And he runs into the waterfall, goes down into the river, And the movie turns out, he does find her. Happy ending. We all love that, don't we? We love that idea. Stay alive, I will find you. As if he has the ability to control what's going to happen. But we love it. We're addicted to it. I love it. See it in sports all the time. Remember the story of Babe Ruth? Babe Ruth points with his bat to the outfield, to the to the home run, to the wall. Steps up there, hits it out of the park. Fantastic. Joe Namath for the Jets. Do you remember that? Football against Baltimore. Says, we're going to win the Super Bowl. They said, you're crazy. Baltimore is a powerhouse. You're not going to win the Super Bowl. They won a Super Bowl. You know, there's a story about Larry Bird, I hear, a basketball player. Periodically, Larry Bird, they were at the end of a game, particularly one night, and uh, he walked over to the bench. The score was tied. He walked over to the bench of the opposing team, and he said, hey, I'm going to let you know this is what I'm going to do. We're going to run a play. I'm going to catch the ball right there, and I'm going to shoot it in his face, and I'm going I'm to score, and we're going we're gonna to leave. Oh, the guy's on the bench. <laughs> You're crazy. What are you talking about? You're calling your shot. And more than that, he told the guy who was defending him. He said, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm going to catch the ball right here. I'm going to do a pick, land right there. I'm going to shoot this in your face, and we're going to walk off the court. We're going to win. And he did exactly that. Told everybody. We love that stuff. I think those stories are fantastic. 
I got a sneaky feeling, though, for every one of those stories, there's probably a hundred of that guys said, I'm going to do this, and it doesn't happen. Never makes it on TV because those stories stink. They don't sell tickets. They don't put people in the seats. You think about that when it comes to God. Does God ever call a shot? Does God ever tell you, I'm going to catch the ball right here and I'm going to put it right in his face and I'm going to score? Not in a mean way, but right from the very beginning, if you think about this, in Genesis 3.15, As soon as we fell, as soon as people said, I'd rather be the creator than the creation, that's what God does. 3.15 says, I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to catch the ball right here. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it in. I'm going to score. The game is won. It's just a matter of going through the motions here. And now we're caught in a text in which you're sitting there watching this. Uh, it's as if somebody's told you we're going to score, we're going to win the Super Bowl, pointing to the to the wall. That's what this passage is about this morning that we're going to look at. We're going to go through verse 67 through 80, and I've got to admit, it's a big piece of scripture to bite off for me, but it's important because it's the time in which Zechariah, in which he had not believed, all of a sudden does believe, begins to believe. Gabriel and Angel had shown up to him and he didn't believe him exactly. We walked through that passage and he said, you're going to be quiet. You're not going to be able to say anything until the eighth day in which that child is circumcised, presented, named. And the passage that we're going to read today is fascinating because we see an overflow of his understanding of God calling his shot. And he's in the midst of seeing this happen before his very eyes. God has said that he's going to send someone, a redeemer. Israel looked for this redeemer throughout the entire Old Testament. God had pointed to the wall. They're looking for him, looking for him. And finally, all of a sudden, Zechariah knows, recognizes. He's in the midst of this coming true. But before we get into the text, I've got to catch you up a little bit, give you a bit of a slow review, a gentle review, you might say. This series is called Certainty, and last time that we met, we thought about this idea in which the text was giving a lot of promises. Specifically, a promise from God is like a guarantee to you and me. Because these promises are sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, but they're not promises like we would think of promises. You see, when God says he's going to do something, it's as good as a guarantee. That's important for you to know. Not only for this text, but for your life. God says he's going to deliver you. He will deliver you. If God says he will forgive your sins, he will forgive your sins. Sometimes we have a hard time believing that, but the promises aren't promises that we might think to one another, but they're really guarantees. And look over in Luke chapter 1, 1 through 3, to give a background of this idea of these promises. The context of the entire gospel of Luke is written. If you notice in verse 1 that Luke says he undertook to create a, compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for sometimes past, to write an orderly account for you, most ex- excellent Theophilus. 
And here's the kicker. This is why we name this series Certainty. That you may have a certainty concerning the things you have been taught. When we started this series, we said the framework of this is an individual named Theophilus. Who is renting his faith, seemingly, and wanting to own his faith. Meaning that word there, certainty, is epigenosco. It has the idea of to know something for certain. To stand strong, to have confidence. It's like the idea of putting your flag into the ground and says, I own this territory. I believe this. It's not just knowledge, it's an ownership. That's the idea. And that idea of taught, the things you've been taught, catechio, it's the basis for the word we get catechism. In other words, Theophilus had been taught stuff, but something had happened when we don't know exactly what, in which maybe he was wavering. Maybe he was asking some deep questions. Maybe he was asking, can I really believe this stuff? Did Jesus really do what he claims to have done? Now people have asked, who is this Theophilus? You know, we don't know. We don't know if it's a, a, some name made up. We don't know if it's an individual specifically, but we don't really need to, do we? You see, because Theophiluses are all around us. Theophiluses work near us. They live near us. They may be in a row near you. They may be in your very seat. People that are going, I'd love to own this and I've been renting it. So that's why he's writing what he's writing. Everything you have in front of you is not some uh, musings of an individual who's got a lot of time on his hands. This is a careful instruction, an investigation. Luke has gone about the business of interviewing people like Mary. People like Zachariah. In other words, how do you know the stories here? How do you know when Mary's only meeting with Gabriel? How in the world did, do we know that? Well, Luke talked to Mary. Tell me what happened. Pen in hand. And he wrote this down. And not merely wrote it down. It's not like history. It's inspired. We believe the Bible's inspired. We believe this is men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write this stuff down. So what that means for you is this. In this passage, there's information that you and I need to know. If we're going to go from renting to owning our faith, and maybe you're there, and maybe you just need to be encouraged to believe God this upcoming Monday, tomorrow, more than you did this week. So we're in this passage here today, and I want to ask you to notice something specifically before we read the passage. This idea of promising to the idea of guaranteeing or the idea of God being faithful, it's almost like this passage serves like a bridge. And now you have to imagine this. Just like a, a baseball player is calling his shot or the the football player is calling the win or the, the basketball player is saying, this is where I'm going to shoot it from. You have to think in a big, broad way, almost like this passage, like a bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament that is slowly migrating across this bridge, the information. And Zechariah is going to help us with this. He's in a moment in which he recognizes he's passing from the old into the new. It's almost like a game or calling the shot or calling a win or uh, making a shot in a basketball game. It's like it's all in slow motion to us as we read, happening in real time to him. But it's like the meta story of God. 
that is slowly unveiling himself in the passage that we're going to study today. And think about it like a bridge. Moving from the old covenant into the new covenant, which we'll talk about here in a moment. And the reason why it's a bridge is because the last prophet lived some 800 years ago. Last prophet. Last angelic visitation was 500 years before the passage that we're looking at. 500 years. America's not even 500 years old. Not even close. Matter of fact, the last speaking of God at all through any prophet written down was over 400 years ago. So the people have not heard from God in a long time. And this bridge starts to happen. And in the passage, I'd ask you to pay attention as we read to two names and one dynamic. Two names and one dynamic. You're going to notice the first name, David. The next name, Abraham. And then you're going to notice some dynamics in the passage that show that this is a bridge, something they've not understood before. From the old to the new. Let's look at the passage, verse 67, chapter 1. And the idea here is that God is faithful. God does what he says he will do. That's the underpinning of this. God does what he says he will do. It says this, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, And raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The idea is God does what he says he will do. The scene is a home. We don't know how big it is. There's people outside of the home. Zachariah Gabriel. Today, the child's been presented, the child's been named, and all of a sudden he erupts. And this is what he says. Imagine the tension. Uh, you've been married a long time. Your wife is clearly past childbearing age. You're a, a priest in the ironic line. We know that from chapter one. You've been looking for the Messiah. Matter of fact, you've been leading people and looking for the Messiah because you're part of the priesthood. You've been serving at the temple three times a year. And all of a sudden, one day in the temple, when you're going through administering the sacrifices, you're in the Holy of Holies. Uh, It's a once in a lifetime time. Probably he's never done it before. He's there. The angel shows up, starts telling this story. You're going to have a son. He's going to be a prophet. And Zechariah goes, can we take a time out for a second? Um, 
how can this be? And the angel says, hold on a second. I stand in the presence of God. You're not going to talk until what I've said comes true. Because you don't believe, you need to learn how to believe. Because you don't trust, you need to be quiet and watch. That's exactly what happens. And by the time we arrive to this section, the eighth day, the baby's placed in his arms. He erupts into this song. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Quiet as a church mouse, sitting there in the corner watching everything happen, wishing he could speak to people, making these signs, you know, making all these things, trying to tell people what's been going on. After a while, he just goes, I can't communicate what happened. They're just going to have to, they're going to have to believe. I'm just going to have to wait. And then this moment happens in which he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, I think, three things that focus on the faithfulness of God. In other words, God called his shot in the Old Testament. And Zechariah's beginning to see the ball be pitched. He's beginning to see the pass be thrown. He's beginning to see the play unfold on the court. And he looks back under the weight of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't pick just anything to say. Now remember, this guy's been quiet throughout the entire pregnancy. And now he erupts with something that you need to hear, that I need to hear, that's been energized by the Holy Spirit. And I think there's three particular things he focuses on. The first is the idea of God's faithfulness. Three expressions. God's faithfulness in Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is yet to come, but I think the faithfulness is in Christ. God's faithfulness coming. Now, how do I know that? You might say, Dan. Well, look over there at verse 67 through 69, speaking through David about Christ. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Pay attention to verse 68. I think it's an amazing verse. It's a wild verse. He has visited us and redeemed his people. Do you notice it's in the past tense? Redeemed his people. Bought back, brought salvation, delivered. That's the idea. He's visited us. He's showed up is the idea. He showed up because what Gabriel's told him about his son being a prophet that is going to point to the Messiah to come has come true in the life of this baby. And he's overwhelmed that when God says something, he does something. A promise is more than a promise to God. It's a done deal. And he erupts with this, and we know it's speaking about Christ, specifically because he says, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Jesus has not even been born yet, but he says he promised a baby, a prophet, to come through me and my wife. It's as good as done that he's going to raise up a son of David. Now, you might say, now, son of David, how does that make that connection? 
Well, if you were Jewish, you'd recognize that was kind of shorthand for Messiah. Or you could say longhand, depending. Matter of fact, you see in places like Matthew 1.1, it says the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, David was given a promise that we find recorded in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17, where it talks about when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father. He'll be to me a son. Speaking about Solomon in some of that verse, but then speaking about this idea of a eternal, everlasting kingdom. In other words, David was in the line of Judah, which is in the line in which the promised Messiah was to come, which God promised an offspring in Genesis 3.15. You see that calling the shot from the very beginning in that son of David, and he describes it the horn of salvation. If you were back in these days, uh, when you're thinking about power, you were thinking about uh, energy, you were thinking about force, uh, and you lived in an agricultural society, you thought the animals that can really bring the heat have horns. Power. You can't break a horn. A, bra- a horn was incredibly strong, and that's the idea. It's a, it's a metaphor for the idea of the horn of salvation, a strong salvation, a delivering salvation, an unbreakable salvation. That's the idea. Rooted in his servant, David. In other words, Zechariah, overwhelmed. And he says, I thank you, God, that you are faithful. What you say, you do. And I believe you now. I believe you. You've given me this child. A child who's going to be the prophet. And he's going to be the prophet who will point to the coming Messiah. You've been faithful to give us the son of David. We know in Jesus. He knew yet to come. That's good news for you. It's good news for me. See, with all the religions of this world saying, follow this way or follow this way or do this, you might be somebody who's the renting to owning your faith. You might be like Theophilus going, did I get this right? Did I, did I mix something up? Did I hitch my wagon to the wrong train? Maybe it's Islam or maybe it's this belief or that belief. Well, Luke investigated Laid it down, interviewed people like Zachariah. He says, listen, there's no doubt about it. God's faithful. He does what he says he'll do. And I'm believing he's going to do exactly what he says in Christ. Matter of fact, to be just sure, if you look over to Luke 1, 31 through 33, when Gabriel showed up to Mary, to be very clear, uh, this Jesus is going to be the son of David. It says this, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. You see that theme? The throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. This can't be just a mere person. Reign over the house of Jacob forever? The house of Jacob, God created that. That's a powerful thing. This is the Messiah. This is what they would come to know as God with us. In his kingdom, there'll be no end. That's incredible. In the interaction with Mary, she asked, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And we know from 
Isaiah that this was going to be the forerunner to Jesus Christ. He was going to be the one who was going to be the prophet, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 3. And it's amazing. Prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord. Remember what it means if it's in all caps? Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jehovah, Yahweh. Prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is coming to prepare the way for Jesus. He says, you're a faithful God. More than that, if you look over the expression of God's faithfulness was first in Jesus and then it's to the Jews. Look at verses 70 through 75. This is through Abraham to the Jewish people, verse 70, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now stop right there. Remember his holy covenant. At this point, I just ask, what covenant would you be thinking about? If you're thinking about the faithfulness of God, are you thinking about the Mosaic covenant? No. You see, the Mosaic Covenant was a performance-based covenant. Remember what a covenant is. A covenant's an agreement between two parties that have certain terms and stipulations. So you go buy a car, you go to a car dealer, you come up with terms, and you sign a contract. You make an agreement, you put your signature on a covenant. that You'll pay a certain amount over a period of time, And until the time you do that, the bank owns the car. Same thing when it comes to owning a house. You might call it a mortgage, but technically it's a covenant in which there are specific terms over specific periods of time that you agree to do something and the bank agrees to do something. They do much less than you. You pay a lot. They sit back and enjoy the payment. It is a covenant. When he speaks of a covenant, remember his holy covenant, he doesn't refer to next the Mosaic Covenant. Why? Because in Exodus chapter 20, when the terms are laid out, Israel goes, yeah, we'll keep those terms. We won't lie. We won't have any other gods. We won't covet. We won't commit any immorality, adultery. We'll honor our father. They go through all the Ten Commandments. They lay all these things out. Within days, they break them. Within days. The Mosaic Covenant is not... If it said the Mosaic Covenant here, the faithfulness of God would look very different to you and me. The faithfulness of God would mean this, that God will be faithful to you as long as you are faithful to him. You would have a big problem. Because I don't know everybody in this room, but I know me. And I'm not nearly as faithful as I'd like to be. But notice what he says. Promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Now this, I'll make you a great nation. I'll deliver you to grant us that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What was the basis for the covenant with Abraham? It was the faithfulness of God. That's it. Faithfulness of God. 
they would believe, they would circumcise their children. But the idea in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, he says in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Picture this. This is calling the shot. God makes a promise. I'm going to make you in a mighty nation. And he bases his covenant on himself. Conditions it on himself. How is that possible? It's only possible because Jesus Christ came. God the Father, God the Son enter into a covenantal agreement. And on the basis of Jesus Christ's performance in that basis, because he walked by faith purely, God on himself, that's why Abraham was asleep in Genesis 15. God promises to bring something to come to pass. And he tucks the Jewish people into that promise. Not the Mosaic promise. Performance. But into the Abrahamic covenant in which God's faithfulness is the centerpiece. Faithful to himself. To his holiness. That we couldn't ever be. You see how the Holy Spirit is moving Zechariah when he has this baby in his arms and he's erupting with the faithfulness of God. God promises something. God does something in Jesus. And now to the Jews, it's as if you can see that, that bridge is being built across the old covenant into the new covenant. This thing is being built. You see the slow motion. God calls a shot. And the slow motion pitch, you're seeing it happen here over 400 years has not been anything. And now all of a sudden, Zechariah sees it and he's just overwhelmed at the goodness, the faithfulness of God. You should be too. More's the pity that we're not more. That we don't see this and it washes over us. We're just overwhelmed. Even in that, be thankful for the faithfulness of God because we are not as grateful as we should be. We should be overwhelmed And yet God says, I'll be faithful to you on the basis of your trust in Christ because he has done everything. My pleasure is in him. And if you find yourself in him, my pleasure rests on you, even when you're ungrateful. Isn't that incredible? You can't get a better deal anywhere. Three expressions. The first is to in Jesus. The next is to the Jews. Look at verses 76 through 80. Through the life of John. After all, we're talking about John the Baptist. He's been born eight days old, sitting in the arms of Zechariah. Now notice this. Um, We don't know for sure, but I'm putting some money on this one. He's sitting down, and he's looking down. This section. He's got the baby in his arms. The people are around. They're blown away. This guy hasn't spoken in, in months. He's just blabbering on. The stuff he's saying is filled with passion, filled with profound truth. He's seeing this bridge in front of him being built. What is he talking about? David, Abraham, trying to catch up. And then I think he looks down, verse 76. And you, child, be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. I think, and you, child, that's where I get the looking down. I think he's got him in his arms. I think he's looking down. And I think he says this. Notice what he says. You'll be the prophet of the Most High. He's not thinking he is the Redeemer. Remember, he is in the priesthood. He's not from the tribe of Judah. 
He is simply the priest who's been looking forward to his wife, also Elizabeth, in the line of Aaron, priest. So he looks down and knows that this is the one who's going to be before. He's the voice that we spoke of in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight a desert. In the desert, a highway for our God. You'll go before the Lord, prepare his ways. Look at verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. That verse 77 should stop you. That should stop you. Knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, You can search all over the Bible. You don't see that concept, that dynamic mentioned until right now. They've always thought about forgiveness of sins relates to the sacrifices. I've done something wrong, I bring this sacrifice. There's a menu of different sacrifices, all the way from an ox, all the way to a pigeon, a bird. They have all these different things in which uh, it's not taking their sins away, it's just showing that they're recognizing before God in the Mosaic Covenant their sins are wrong. And so there has to be loss. There has to be a sacrifice involved. In other words, there has to be some form of loss. Loss of life of an animal, but it can't ever pay for their sins. It only puts off the judgment for their sins. Look at it this way. We've talked about this before. Think of it like Christmas. Um, You don't have the money, but you want to get the presents. And so you put something on layaway at Walmart. I don't even know if they do that anymore. You want to get something, you put it on layaway. In other words, you reserve it for the payment yet to come. So the Old Testament, there's uh, the sacrifices, look at them like layaway. They're laying away, laying away, laying away, laying away. There's mountains of debt. And then this is said, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. See, he's going to be a prophet and he's going to say, listen, repent, deal with your sins, recognize the debt you've run up here. It's in the back room, but God's demanding a payment. But there's coming someone who has an unlimited bank account. And if you trust in him, he'll give you the forgiveness of your sins. This has never been uttered before. This idea is directly connected. And there has to be some form of justice here. But the forgiveness of sins. If you're standing around the room and this old man is sitting down looking in the face of a child. And he begins to say this stuff. You're going, hold on a second. He might have lost his mind. I think you realize, he says, David, Abraham, something's going on here. We know God called his shots. and There's something happening here that, this is amazing. God's faithfulness now is being put on display. Over 400 years ago, he's showing up in the life of this family. And this life of his family now pointing to the life of a Messiah to come. Amazing, verse 78, because of... The tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Wow. Isn't that good? A lot of darkness in our world today. A lot of need for peace. In their world, it was the same way. Romans have their, the boot of their heel on the necks of the Jewish people. They want to be delivered And this picture of the Messiah coming was a picture they longed to see. And it speaks to the idea of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31, it says this in verse 33. 
For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they will be my people. And the idea of, and I will forgive their iniquity, I'll remember their sin no more. And now Zechariah is saying, this child is going to be the way to prepare that road of the new covenant coming. That God will take that heart of stone out of you that you wish you could obey. And he says, I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh that craves to walk after Christ. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 talks about, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That's incredible. Zechariah recognizes it in the life of this child, in the story that he's a part of. God does what he says he will do. He is faithful. As the band is coming up, there's a few questions I want you to think about because this idea of, I will find you, I will come for you, we talked about at the beginning, the last of the Mohicans. It's a great story. Can't control all the people involved. But the story we have, it's not on a big screen or digitized. It's much better. You see, God called his shots. And when he, as the, as the groom says, I will find you, he did. If you're a follower of Christ here this morning, the reason why you are is because he's faithful. He found you. There should be an overwhelming aspect of appreciation and gratefulness to that, that I lack in my life. Maybe you feel that too. I think I should be much more focused than I am. And that grieves me. And yet when I read stories like this, caught up in the text, God says he'll do something he does. Promise is a guarantee. A couple questions, few questions. How does the faithfulness of God humble you? How does the faithfulness of God humble you? Certainly the idea of God and you should measure yourself and find yourself in living in a lifetime of repentance. But know this, he is faithful because he set his affections on you because of what Christ has done. And Christ has called you to himself. How does that humble you this morning? Does it enliven you? Does it fire you up? If it doesn't, can I give you a prescription? Shut off all the media in your life and just start reading chapter 1 of Luke. Ask God to give you insight. Smell the ocean air. Uh, feel the, the closeted feeling of the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. Imagine Gabriel standing before Zechariah. Imagine him visiting Mary. Be caught up in the story. Take time. Turn off. Dive in. Ask God to humble you, to bring this new and afresh. Second question is, how does reflecting on the faithfulness of God change you? Can I give you another little uh, hint here? If you spend that time, I guarantee one thing will happen in your life. One thing will be brought in your life. You'll want to obey Christ better and more. You see, there's something about this idea to be true. You're awesome. 
because of changing you? How's it changing your marriage? How's it changing parents, how you relate to your kids? How does it relate to how you relate to people, neighbors, coworkers? If he's been faithful to you when you didn't deserve it and you see people around you, do you have a short fuse in which you go, oh, that's so much evil. How can they do that? Well, if it wasn't for the faithfulness of God, that'd be you. It should change you. Give you compassion. Give you patience. Give you boldness. Third question. Who is it in your life who needs to hear about our faithful God? Who is it in your life? Maybe that neighbor. Coworker, friend. Who is that Theophilus who needs to go from renting ideas or details or facts to trusting, to owning their faith? Who is that? Determine now to open your mouth. To say, hey, I, I learned something in church today. I, I'd love to share a couple things about how God called his shot all the way back in Genesis 3. And he did that in a way that he controlled everything to bring Jesus into this world. Tell them a story about baseball players. Tell them a story about basketball players and how everybody likes to call their shot, but only God did consistently. And that's an awesome God I'd like you to consider. Open your mouth. Who is that person? You see, the things that we talk about on Sunday morning were never meant to stay in this room. They don't escape the room and leak into your life. And we're just playing games. Faithfulness of God is a brilliant testament to his holiness. Let's not be silent. Oh, would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful that when you make a promise, you keep it. Because it's a guarantee. When you say something, you do something. And we're seeing this in slow motion, this bridge, this old covenant to new covenant in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as we begin to see that unfold more and more with chapter 2 next week and on and on, it goes from this little room in a little village and it begins to explode in the countryside, in Jerusalem, in Egypt, and eventually around the world. We are sitting here because this story got out because your faithfulness is consuming this land. You're faithful to your word, and your word says that this will be a global place of worship. The earth will be a place in which all creatures will worship you one day. And you are slowly reclaiming the ground that was lost in the fall because you are faithful to what you said will be. And we are part of that. Thank you for that. Help us to have a view, a discernment, an understanding so that we might walk in this truth and have a boldness that we might be able to share the good news of how others can enter into knowing your faithfulness. Help us to be mindful. Help us to be courageous. Help us to make sure we give you all the honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.